Jeffrey Lickman for Beyond the Legal Limit. It's a new podcast. It's November 21st. And this is going to be a different type of podcast. After last week's midterms, I'm still too pissed off to do one of my traditional types of podcasts where I talk about current events. I talk about uh, some legal issues or some uh, history of mine. I watched Trump give his low energy speech announcing that he's going to run again in 2024. I watched that last week. He'll be over 78 years old when he runs again in two years. And the whole thing is just too depressing. Assuming that he's still alive and not in jail, he'll surely be beaten by whatever garbage the Democrats run against him, no matter how incompetent uh, that person may be, whether it's Biden, whether it's Kamala Harris, whether it's Pete Buttigieg, it doesn't make a difference. They can put all the garbage there. They're all going to beat Trump. And it's due to a combination of Trump doing nothing during his four years in office to stop voter fraud, as well as the fact that the country, other than his shrinking base of imbeciles, they, they just hate his guts. The whole country just hates him. They're exhausted by him, that they'd actually vote for the shit that we're having place right now as the country's falling apart tells you all you need to know. Now, my guess is that if any Republican does primary him and somehow beat him, that Trump will just tell his base to stay home or just badmouth the Republican candidate. Either way, it ends in disaster now that he's announcing uh, that he's running. So if you'll excuse me, um, like Ron DeSantis, I'll be rooting for either Trump to be indicted so he won't run, or I'll be rooting for the next cheeseburger that perhaps will finally do him in. Sorry, that's just how I feel. But I'm not talking about any more current events because, frankly, it's making me nauseous. One thing that crossed my mind this week was how unusual uh, my career is as a criminal defense lawyer. The types of things that happen during the week uh, to normal people don't happen to criminal lawyers. There's much more potential variety. Now, when I was a young kid, I never imagined that in my career I would be visiting prisons, jails, penitentiaries, immigration facilities, even one time in my life, let alone well over a thousand times I've been to these places in my life. This week, I drove four hours to the middle of nowhere, Pennsylvania, to see and meet an inmate charged with the most horrific crimes. Four hours passed, wheat field after wheat field. I stayed in some cheap hotel because that's all that existed by the prison. And I would say that I thanked God that there was a Chick-fil-A nearby, less than half a mile. It was like seeing a pool of water in the midst of a desert. It's Chick-fil-A is that good. And the place was so packed. It's like the entire town was there. Everything else in the town was cold and empty. You walk inside Chick-fil-A, they've got the gold light strung outside for Christmas. It's packed. There were Amish people waiting in line. It was just awesome. Everybody brought together happy eating Chick-fil-A. I digress. As I said, when I was a kid, I never imagined that I'd ever be in a prison inside one. Uh, and, I, and now I go with, with some regularity. I also never imagined that I'd be sitting with people accused of such horrific crimes. But here we are. And you have to adapt if you didn't grow up around people like this. I mean, who did? I was from a very blue-collar town, but it wasn't filled with Ponzi schemers, killers, mafia bosses, crooked politicians. I mean, I'm sure there were some. We had a KKK when I was growing up, and we did have a mafia killing in uh, in my town, allegedly a mafia killing, Clark, New Jersey. 
I also recall, and I looked on the internet and couldn't find it, there was a shooting at the log cabin bar down the road from my house in the 60s, probably around the time I was born. Of course, now the town is even worse. I noticed online that a kid was found with a gun inside the high school earlier this year in Clark. So this is, uh, this is what society has become. Anyway, as I was saying, you have to adapt in order to be able to connect with people who are in jail. And you need to be able to adapt even if you're just going to a jail because we're not used to this type of thing. You don't just walk in and just be the regular person that you are. You have to, uh, you have to sort of roll with the punches, so to speak. And if you're going to jail after getting convicted, same thing. You really have to adapt because if you're like me, you'd be some white guy going into jail and, well, things aren't like – What you see on the outside, they're not like that on the inside. Now, most white inmates get extorted unless they're in a gang. Let's just start that from the beginning. That's what happens inside prison. White-collar inmates get extorted with regularity. The way the extortion works is they're told, pay me, pay us, or we'll do one of the following. We'll kill you, beat you, not let you use the phone, etc., Because in prison, most of the people are in some gang or another. You're a white dude with a white-collar conviction, and you're not. What gang are you in? Like the accounting uh, gang? You're not in any gang. And most of the time, the prison guards are aware of what's going on, and, and they don't care. Sometimes they're actually in on it and get a piece of the action. Money is sent to to the extortionists electronically to the girlfriend, usually. A couple thousand dollars here or there, and or even sometimes as little as a couple hundred. In the older days, a wife of an inmate um, would have to meet a girlfriend of the guy committing the extortion, either outside the prison, a parking lot, whatever, to exchange cash. The convenient, conventional thinking is, well, if I pay this maniac, the rest of them will be after me as well. I mean, that's what you think of. That's why you never negotiate with terrorists. Well, if you negotiate with one, they're all going to try to take advantage of you. But usually what happens is you think, well, what am I going to do? Take that chance? I want to get the shit beaten out of me? Or do you want to pay a few hundred or a few thousand dollars and possibly not get killed or beaten? So people usually pay. They don't usually tell their lawyers, but I've been asked. And my response is, look, I can't advise you to pay somebody who's extorting you. But at the same time, if it was my kid, you know, I mean, what are you going to do? You don't want to get killed, and you're not in a place where you have any kind of control inside prison. It's the complete opposite of what the outside world is, where you normally hang out and who you hang out with. You don't have a choice in prison. Prison officials have been told about extortion, about threats. Prosecutors get told. No one cares. Short of someone getting killed, no action is is taken for this kind of stuff. It just doesn't happen. It happens too frequently that they just don't want to be bothered with it. Now, organized crime defendants, on the other hand, fare better. They have protection around them in the form of uh, their mafia associates or whatever group they're in. It doesn't mean they don't occasionally have physical altercations with other groups, but it's like NATO. You know, one guy is attacked and they all respond. So usually the groups stay away from each other because they sense the strength. They don't want it. I can tell you that I've known mafia guys uh, that have walked into prison on the first day. This is a true story that just popped into my head. A very tough mafia killer that I represented who was 
responsible for a very famous mafia killing. He walked in. He walked up to the line of inmates waiting uh, for the phone. He grabbed it out of one of the inmates' hands. It was a black inmate. He wanted to make a point. I'm not suggesting that this is appropriate or not racist. I'm just telling you a story that happened. He grabs the phone out of the black inmate's hand, and he proceeds to beat him over the head with the receiver, the hard receiver. That's what happened. The guy was on the ground, collapsed. He then made his phone calls. Message was sent. I'm not in here. It was actually at Rikers Island. I'm not in here with a lot of mafia guys because mafia guys are not in a state prison like Rikers very often, very rarely. Usually they're in federal lockups. Rikers is a state lockup. He made it very clear. If you fuck with me, I'll kill you. And I'm not afraid to die. He had no problems in prison and he was an older inmate. That happened. True story. One day, uh, perhaps when he passes, I can tell you the the murder that he uh, was alleged to have been involved in. Now, when wives and girlfriends of the wealthy white inmates come to visit, they're wildly uncomfortable at first because this is out of their comfort zone. The people they come in contact with, the wives and girlfriends of other inmates, I'm talking about when they're going to prison, are usually people of color and a swift education ensues. No matter how arrogant they think that they are, you know, when they're on their outside and how much they look down on people like this in in real life, the wives and girlfriends of other inmates, they have no choice but to swallow their pride and just deal. I find that they often make friends with these people who, as I said, in a typical life situation, would probably be their maids at best in real life. But they have to adapt and they sort of get excited by it. It's It's a fun thing for them. Uh, to, to mix with people like this. Now, prisons are mostly filled with minorities. So the white people in them have a 180-degree turnaround as they are now the minorities. So they quickly learn to keep their heads down and figure a way to help other inmates so as not to get the shit beaten out of them or to get extorted. And sometimes the white inmates are highly educated and they can offer people inside their something, something of value, their education. They can help, and that's what they do. They'll help inmates with their legal filings. They'll edit letters. They'll talk to them about what to ask their lawyers. They'll help them understand what's going on in their cases if the inmates are either illiterate or need help. Jelaine Maxwell did just that, and she was widely appreciated at the MDC in Brooklyn. That's the Federal Lockup Metropolitan Detention Center. That's what it's called. She humbled herself because she had no choice, and she survived inside. I'm not saying that she changed as a person. She didn't at all, I'm certain. But she understood that she had to play the game if she wanted to survive, and that's what she did. I suspect in her regular life, she wasn't nearly as accommodating to people such as the ones she met in prison but she had no choice again. That's the name of the game in prison. You have no choice but to shut your mouth, swallow your pride, and survive until you can get out. Now, even then, sometimes very bad things happen in prison. I had a client many, many years ago. This is 1993, perhaps, a a dorky real estate executive who was in Rikers Island uh, for hiring a hitman to kill his wife and her best friend on a shopping trip they were going to be going because he wanted to make it look like a random robbery gone bad. Uh, The hitman, who was actually a private detective, that's who was hired, instead went to the police and my client was arrested after video and audio tapes were made of him during meetings with the purported hitman in which my client implicated himself, and that was the case. 
I remember on these tapes, my client was recorded asking the hitman to kill his wife and her girlfriend after the Jewish holidays because he wasn't a monster, his words, not mine, and didn't want to upset his kids any more than he had to. And he just got brutalized in Rikers. Rikers is, as I said, is as bad as any prison I've been in. I've been in prisons all over the world. Rikers is disgusting. It is run by guards who are really very little different than the inmates. There's really almost no discernible difference. It's completely corrupt. This client was constantly getting abused, badly extorted. His family had mostly abandoned him for the obvious reasons. Well, he tried to kill the matriarch of the family. He was having such difficulty. He didn't have anybody who could pay off the inmates. It was very, very hard for him. I think he had a sister that was close to him still. Anyway, one day I went to see him and he told me that he had some kind of psychic break in prison. I mean, I didn't know about it until after he told me that he was getting abused again by the same uh, group of inmates. And the next thing he knew, he woke up and there's blood all over the place and all over him. And it wasn't his blood. They ended up moving him to a different area away from uh, that inmate. I think that was the end of his problems. Now, when I first went to Rikers, I didn't first go until I started working for Jerry Shargell. And that's the kind of guy Jerry was. He was like, look, you have to go see somebody in jail. You go see him. Rikers, you were allowed to, even back then in the early 90s, they could be brought to court and you could see them there in Manhattan. Rikers is in Queens. It's a pain in the ass to get to. My first boss would never have gone to Rikers. He was too precious. He was too special. Uh, he was a member of high society. He could not possibly go there. Jerry, on the other hand, was a mook from New Jersey like me. We went to Rikers. And I remember him telling me, and this is a, a, a detail that sticks out in my head. He's like, oh, you're going to love Rikers. It's like being in a French movie. Uh, there's a bus that takes you to the prison. It's really kind of cool. You'll see. And I have to tell you, the first time I went to Rikers, it was very interesting. It was a very cool experience. One time. The first time. After that, no. Not so much. Now, Rikers is made up of 10 separate jails. Some hold adult males, uh, others younger males, ages 18 to 21. Some of the jails hold females. One is the infirmary. They each have names, but you know them by their initials. The women's jail is the Rose M. Singer Center, which is known as RMSC. The George Machin Detention Center, GMDC. You ask people what these initials stand for, no one knows, but everybody knows the initials. I had to actually look them up to, to tell you them. The George R. Vierno Center is GRVC. The Anna M. Cross Center is AMKC. One jail is named after a guy named Otis. He must have been a warden or something. Uh, and if he was smart, he would not want one of these jails, disgusting jails, really, named after him. I don't know what he was thinking. I'm guessing he was dead, and they named it after him uh, after he died, and he had no choice. Now, this is how you get in to Rikers Island. First, you have to stop. You're driving, because you have to drive there, at a shed-like structure before you head out onto the island. It actually is an island. It's by the uh, airports in Queens. So you pull into this parking lot. 
you park your car, you, you go up to this shed. It's like a large shed. And there's a couple of guys inside. You have to show your bar ID, your driver's license, and the registration of your car for some reason. You fill out who you're going to see with their inmate number, and they give you a laminated pass to put on your dashboard, which allows you to get on onto the island, into the area where you need to see the inmates, because everything, there's security checks along the way, and they need to see that pass uh, on your dashboard. And to get to the island, you actually drive on a two-lane road with water on both sides. If you didn't know, you'd think it's actually, you might be on vacation. One lane is coming, one lane is going, you can't pass anybody. And for like 30 seconds, it's a pleasant part of Rikers Island, that little drive over the water. And then you go to a guardhouse, and then you, once you get past that, you park by a main entrance building. And it's this huge parking lot, and a lot of the guards are parked there, all the people that work inside Rikers. But there's always room. It's a big enough place. My memories of parking there is that you're always crunching glass. You're always driving over glass, and you're shuddering, hoping that you don't get a flat tire. That's Rikers Island. Glass all over the place. You walk inside, you check in, you have to fill out uh, some paperwork, and they end up, after you do all that, they tell you which bus will take you to the prison that your client is in. You've got to walk through a metal detector, put your stuff on a a conveyor belt, uh, an x-ray machine, and then you walk outside, and there's a parking lot where there are slots for yellow buses, like school buses, big ones. They have a number in the window and the initials for the prisons that the buses are going to. You know your number. They tell you your prison you're going to is number four. You walk outside, you look at the buses, you pray that number four is there. Sometimes you have to wait. But eventually you get on and the buses make a number of stops until they get to yours because they don't just go to one prison. So you need to read the signs when you pull up to each prison. You don't want to miss it. God forbid you miss your stop and you have to go through the entire loop again. And the buses don't run on time or really any time. They just show up whenever. And I just thought of another story, which I'll tell you. So you you sit on a bus with other lawyers, um, but there's usually very few lawyers on these buses. It's usually prison officers, uh, the guards. The music is on loud. Everybody is dancing in their seats. And you're sitting there like some asshole clutching your pad and your legal papers. Finally, you get to your jail, you get out and walk inside and you fill out more paperwork and you go through some more metal detectors. And there's like a little desk there. I'm laughing right now. A story just popped into my head. There was a female defense lawyer once who was constantly getting into trouble and she um, passed drugs or something to her inmate boyfriend inside and she got caught and she wasn't allowed to go to Rikers to visit inmates for some period of time. And I remember one time going there and I was sort of looking on the, the, the wall of the desk and in, in front of the desk of where uh, they were checking me in inside one of the prisons. And there was a picture of her. It was hilarious. And then there was the words that said, do not let this lawyer in. And it was like when Bart Simpson wasn't allowed to go uh, to see a movie that he wanted to go because he had misbehaved. I don't know if you watched The Simpsons. He went to try to sneak into a movie and pay for a ticket. And inside the, the ticket booth was a picture of Bart Simpson. and said, do not let this boy in. Same situation. Um, after you go through uh, the metal detectors, you get brought to an attorney inmate area and you wait for your guy. It could be five minutes. It could be 50 minutes. You never know. It really depends on how many breakfasts the guards are eating at any given time. Breakfast is the highest order 
inside prisons. The highest. It is a religious experience. Everything stops when breakfast man arrives to drop off the orders. So after they're done eating uh, breakfast and licking their fingers, the guards are very enthusiastic about their breakfasts, I assure you. The guards get the inmate to the attorney-client area. In some of the prisons, you can sit across from them, and you have like a contact visit is what it's called. You can say hello, shake their hands. In other jails inside Rikers, you get locked into a room where you're on one side of the glass, and the inmate is locked in on the other side. And there's a tiny window in the door that's behind you that's locked. It's a heavy metal door, and you can kind of look out a little bit, except that the window is very thick plastic, and it's all foggy, and it's all scratched. So you really can't see much. You press a button when you're done and you pray to God that it's not uh, breakfast time when, when they finally come to get you because you could be waiting there for a while. And if you have any kind of claustrophobia, it's what I would call an unpleasant experience. Now, once I was speaking to an inmate who, along with his brother, the two Albanian brothers named Simon and Victor Dadage, they had stabbed and shot two men to death in the Scores Strip Club in Manhattan in 1996. And the victims were a bouncer and a waiter in the club and just a brutal set of murders. They had gotten a hung jury in their first trial on some of the charges in 1999, and they wanted to hire me for their second trial. But I only had like a month or two to get ready. The first trial was like in January, and the second one was just a few months later. There was just no way that I was going to take a case of that magnitude and you know, screw it up. Uh, I, I wanted to be prepared for trials. That's how I am. I don't take things half-assed. And this was a murder case. There was nothing more serious. And I just couldn't do it. And I remember the lawyer that had been representing him was uh, the late Al Brackley, who was just a tremendous uh, murder defense lawyer from Brooklyn. Just tremendous. He's passed on now. But this guy, would seemingly with no preparation, could try murder cases, and he'd win them all the time in the state. He was just a brilliant state practitioner on the most difficult murder cases, just the most. And he said to me, "Are you? what's wrong with you? He's like, how much time do you need to prepare for this? I'm like, Al, you know, it's a fucking murder case, man. You know, these guys could die in jail if I lose. He's like, come on, you need a few weeks. And I was like, no. So I went in to see the judge and asked him if he would give me a, in a German, I mean, what's the harm? They're both in jail. They had just had a trial a few months earlier, and I go in to see him, and I'll never forget this. It's like it was yesterday. It's 1999. And I walk in, and he's standing up. He sees me. This is all done off the record. Uh, this is not done with any court reporter. This is how things are done sometimes in the state. And I asked him, can I get this adjournment? And I'll never forget what he said to me. Simon and Victor aren't getting any adjournment. They're getting convicted this time. The judge was Edwin Torres. He's famous for writing the book, which later became the movie Carlito's Way. They were both convicted in the second trial. Simon received 50 years to life, 25 to life for each murder. Victor had been acquitted of some of the charges and received, I think, about 13 years now. And he's out, actually. He's actually out now. And I remember seeing Ed Torres at a Christmas party. He was very close friends with Jimmy LaRosa. And uh, that's when I was uh, close with Jimmy. I think I was dating his daughter. And I, I just remember thinking, like, how could this guy do this to me? But that's how things are. Anyway, I'm with, uh, I'm with Simon uh, Dejaj, and loud sirens go off. I couldn't hear anything. They were just blaring. I looked out the tiny, scratchy, foggy window. 
and a bunch of guards with shields in front of them and helmets on with uh, like batons that they're carrying in their other hand. They're running past the door like stormtroopers. The sirens were so loud. I tried to be calm, but it was just crazy. I'm in this tiny locked room and I'm wondering, how am I ever going to get out when no one's going to be listening for the buzzer? I look over at Simon and I'm trying to like remain calm. And he had not batted an eye, just totally calm. I have no doubt that his heart rate was at about 70. And that's what jail does to you when you're inside. You become immune to utter insanity. And as I said in Rikers, uh, the inmates and the guards are pretty much the same. You can get a cell phone. You can smuggle one into Rikers very easily, a charger. Inmates call their families from them. They call their lawyers, anyone they want. Pretty much you can get a cell phone in in the New York Federal Prison as well, the MDC in Brooklyn. Pretty much any federal prison, other than perhaps the most secure ones, guards sometimes sell them. That's true. Everyone knows this is going on. Uh, Sometimes you'll be sitting at home, you're watching a game on a Sunday, and a strange number is calling your cell phone. You pick it up, and it's a client of yours calling you to say, hey, what's up? And he's calling from his fucking cell. You hope that it's a three-way call, a legitimate call to a family member who then brings you into the call, but it's not. It's a guy on his cell phone from prison, and if you can get cell phones in, you can guess how easy it is to get drugs inside a prison. I've had clients tell me that they've had an easier time getting drugs in prison than they did on the street. True story. The federal prisons that aren't uh, just used for pretrial detainees, I'm talking about ones where people are sent after being sentenced by, by the court, they're much better in comparison. Unless we're talking about like the supermax places where my client, uh, El Chapo Guzman, is being held. He's under lockdown 23 hours a day, and it's, it's physical and mental torture. But the standard federal prisons where people go after they're sentenced are not nearly as bad as the local lockups, the MDC in Brooklyn and what had been the MCC in Manhattan. You're safer by far uh, than in a place like Rikers or, as I said, the MCC or the MDC. And that's where the inmates are awaiting trial. So you're getting all types of inmates, people charged with murder, gang members and white collar people. And that's where Jeff Epstein died, the MCC, which now has been closed. It was that bad. And I'd been going to the MCC since, I think, the fall of 1990 until it closed just a couple of years ago. Judges routinely give lower sentences to inmates who are housed in the MDC in Brooklyn. It's that bad. Once I saw an attorney on his cell phone inside the MDC, and I don't mean like outside the visiting area, where you first walk in, I'm talking inside where the inmates are, where you've gone through multiple metal detectors and the like. It's completely illegal, but, you know, this is what it is. The place is run, for the most part, by incompetent people. Now, does anyone remember the Abner Louima case? He was a Haitian immigrant who was arrested by Brooklyn cops at a club in 1997 after a fight was reported there. On the way to the station, uh, the cops there, and he was going to be processed at the station, he was beaten in the squad car and then badly beaten in the precinct. He was beaten so bad that they used one of the uh, cops, used a broken broomstick and shoved it up his ass. He had his teeth damaged after when that officer, and it was this hulking 25-year-old asshole named Justin Volpe, he shoved the broomstick, took it out of the guy's ass, Abner's ass, and then jammed it in his mouth and, and broke his teeth. 
Louima required multiple surgeries, and if you recall, Volpe was said to have walked around the precinct after, after he did this, holding up the broken broomstick, and he said, I took down a man tonight. Very, very brave, Justin Volpe. Naturally, Volpe was the son of a cop, so you can guess where he learned the police brutality from. I don't know. It's just a hunch. You know, monkey see, monkey do. Naturally, the cops that were present that night lied about what happened. They blamed it on gay sex and that Louima had uh, allegedly had. I remember sitting with Jerry Shargell outside the courtroom when Volpe's trial was about to begin. His lawyer was so proud of the defense he was going to use, he was still claiming that Louima had these horrific injuries from gay sex. Jerry and I looked at each other like, this lawyer is insane. But what else did he have? He had nothing else, really. Uh, and that's the truth. Volpe ended up giving up, mad, uh, giving up midway through the trial, and he pled guilty, and he got 30 years um, in the feds. Now, the point of the story is that I was sitting with a particularly tough organized crime client in the MCC in Manhattan in one of the attorney rooms, which are small but somewhat spacious. It was after Volpe had received his 30 years. He was now, he was in prison the whole time, but now he's among people like Admiral Louima, who he had abused in his brief career in law enforcement. So it's not, he's not quite as safe as he was inside the precinct. Everybody hates cops in prison. Doesn't matter if you're a bad cop. And my client, Neil, who was maybe 5'5, five, 5'6, five, five, 140 pounds, but had a reputation as a ferocious, killer. His cases were so fascinating. I'm, I'm just thinking about it now. It's been so many years. I have to do an episode on Neil. His attempted murder case in the state was so terrifying, just terrifying what happened. I'm thinking back, it's popped into my head and a memory that I had, uh, I guess, forgotten. And I checked uh, before this podcast and Neil was released from prison, federal prison, Three months ago, he had received 168 months from a federal judge for narcotics trafficking on top of the attempted murder in New Jersey, uh, that case. I've got to find Neil. I actually really, I loved the guy. He just drove me nuts, but we always had a good time in cases. It doesn't make any sense, I know, to you, but I love the guy. And Neil and I are in an attorney conference room in the MCC, and you can see out there's a glass window, the door is largely glass because they want the guards to be able to walk by and see what's going on inside. It's not like it's a small window. Almost the entire uh, door is glass and see-through. And my back is to the door, to, which is the hallway in the attorney conference area is, is what's right outside the door. And Justin Volpe walks by. And as I said, my back is to the door, so I can only see Neil's face as we're talking. And there's just a massive change came over his face. He stopped talking and he had the most serious, scary face on. I'll never forget it. I mean, this is decades ago. I would not want to be on the wrong side of that face. I can tell you his face froze in just a terrifying look. He was looking at the door. I turned around and Justin Volpe was there waiting to be let into a room to see his attorney. And he was just stopped outside our door. And the look in his eyes, and this was a hulking monster, three times the size of Neil. He was terrified, terrified. Neil was also 20 years older than him. My guess is that Neil would have killed him in less than 30 seconds if he had the chance. 
No one, as I said, likes cops in prison, even bad cops. By the way, I checked. Justin Volpe is in a low-security prison in Minnesota right now and is scheduled to be released from prison in about a year. Time flies, right? Well, at least for people on the outside. Now, not all wise guys in prison are tough guys. Once Jerry uh, Shorgel, Jimmy LaRose, and myself represented a father and son in a Brooklyn federal mob case and it included uh, charges of murder. I don't remember who had the father, who had the son, you know, which one of us. I mean, I was working with Jerry at the time. This is sometime in the 90s. But my recollection was that as soon as we got hired, the father, whose nickname was Shellackhead, because he had this great uh, pompadour for his head of hair, he started to complain about his teeth. His teeth. That he wasn't getting the appropriate dental care for his teeth in prison. He'd just gotten arrested. And that's all he talked about whenever uh, we'd go see him. My teeth hurt, my teeth hurt. And this was the underboss of a New York crime family. Well, I remember saying to Jerry, we walked out of there like the first or second time, teeth, teeth, my teeth, my teeth. I said, this this guy's going to be a rat. I mean, he can't handle being in prison because of his teeth, his teeth. Well, two months after he was indicted and hired us, he and his son flipped and became cooperators for the government. We were all let go, obviously, the lawyers. He hired uh, cooperator lawyers, and he testified against the boss of the Bonanno family, Joe Messino. Messino was convicted, and then he became a cooperator, the first boss of a family to become a rat. I always thought that Shellac had flipped because of his teeth. I'll take that to my grave. Naturally, Shellacad's family and he did a reality TV show in 2017 on the Oxygen Channel, and the show lasted just seven episodes, and it chronicled their attempt to start their lives over again after having left witness protection. I watched one of the um, one of the clips on it. It was just it was it was I, you know whatever. You just if you want to watch it. Go ahead. I've also talked about prisons in other podcasts in foreign countries. I've been to a few, Brazil, Curaçao. I've been to uh, prisons in London. I was in one in Canada. The one in Curaçao was worse than the MDC. It was very Midnight Express, uh, if you've ever seen that movie. You visit with the clients, not inside. You meet with them outside, literally outside, not even in a room. Uh, if I recall, it's sort of like a wide open space, but there's no lawyers visiting anybody there. There's a bunch of rooms in a row. There's like one lawyer there when you're there. That's it. I remember that you can smell human waste. You can smell shit as you're walking to that area. And, if, and I remember looking down on the cement grounds as you're walking to that inmate attorney visiting area, and you can actually see the shit sort of running in little rivers on the ground. Well, that's what it is. They don't have a great uh, situation there for handling, getting rid of waste. I remember there was a sign on the wall that the doctor was in like one or two hours the entire week. It said the time and the day. God knows how many hundreds of prisoners were there. And the doctor was there for like one or two hours per week. Now, before I did this podcast, I went through the contemporaneous notes of things that happened to me when I was much younger, notes that I wrote down after. I, I've read uh, one of them uh, about Howie Krantz a bunch of episodes ago, but I looked through them again for this episode. And I just can tell you this. I was a different person then. Maybe I had the same energy back then as I do now, but it was much more crazy energy back then. I was a hothead. I hadn't accomplished anything yet. 
Um, this is, we're talking 1994, I suppose. And what I did in these occasions is I took notes immediately after something happened that I thought was interesting. And they weren't necessarily important things, but they were just sort of a slice of life as to what I was experiencing. It was also shocking to me because it was so different from what I had grown up with. And oftentimes I wrote the notes down in the car after I left whatever I had been in. I didn't even wait until I got home as I wanted them to be verbatim. I'd write them down and then I'd go home and I'd type them up. I figured that when I got older, I'd find these memories interesting. And then I just forgot about them. Life happens. Until recently when I stumbled upon them and I read some during that Michael uh, Burnett episode, Howie Krantz. And when I'm about to read our notes from a visit to the federal prison in Brooklyn, the MDC, again, it's a pretrial lockup. So people that are just charged with crimes, nobody that's been convicted yet. This is back from, you know, 20, how many years ago? Almost 30 years ago. And when I say it's a pretrial lockup, again, that means that no one has gone to trial yet. They're all just arrested and awaiting trial. If there's anyone that's convicted there, it's just right after their trial and they're just waiting for sentencing. Then they get designated to a permanent facility out of Brooklyn, out of the state afterward. Back in the 90s, I'd go to prison every week without fail, at least once a week, sometimes more. I'd go to the MDC, the Brooklyn prison, always on weekends because you had to drive there. I couldn't take the, the subway that I could to the Manhattan prison. And I always got there early on the weekends. And I'm talking, this is the kind of person I was back then. People are sleeping on a Saturday and I would be in my car at 8 a.m. to go to the MDC. I'd get there. There was no traffic on the road. I'd get there at 8.25 or so. I wanted to get in and get out. But sometimes it was crowded with family visits. And I always hated it because sometimes funny stuff happened. But for the most part, it was really a drag. And sometimes I had to see more than one inmate. And you just you can't see him for five, ten minutes. The guards back then were much more vindictive and sadistic compared to how they are now. And I mean in dealings with lawyers. And I'm talking about the federal prison, not the state prison, because I think that in Rikers, um, they're still pretty sadistic when dealing with inmates now. I mean, they may not be as bad as they were back then, but I've represented prison guards not that long ago who were charged with brutally beating the shit out of prisoners. It still happens with regularity today. Don't kid yourself. Now, the date of these notes, what I have in my notes, is Saturday, January 22nd. I looked it up, and it makes sense. It was 1994. So we're talking just about 30 years ago, I guess 29 years ago. Now, let me try to draw a picture of the MDC visiting area. You walk into a giant room. In the center are tables and chairs, and that's where the inmates have their family visits. Any number of visitors at a time can be visiting an inmate. I'm sure there's a limit. I don't know if it's four or five, whatever. Usually it's one, sometimes two or three. Sometimes there are kids. And it's painful when you see young kids there. They just are acting like this is normal. You don't ever want this to be normal. It's just, it's too awful. And to see little kids having to go inside the prison and see their fathers, it's, it's very sad. And it was sad back then. And it's sad now. Around the perimeter of this large room are enclosed small meeting rooms. That's where the lawyers meet their clients. And there's maybe 10 of these rooms of varying size, depending on how much room you need, how many inmates. You may have a co-defendant meeting, and you could be with eight other lawyers and, and nine uh, defendants. So there's one room that's, that's pretty big and has room for all that. 
This was a Saturday morning. I'm going to now read exactly verbatim as to what I wrote. There has not been a change made, so you'll excuse me, please. I may break in a little bit and explain some things, but this is not me anymore. I just want that again. Little caution sign here. This is not me. This is a different person from 30 years ago. There are parts of me that are in it, but I'm different. It's Saturday morning and I'm back in jail. I'm visiting a potential new client, a wise guy who was choosing between two lawyers, Jerry being one of them. I've only met Joey once, just a hello, and I hope that we hit it off today. Since reputations of big lawyers are often equal, if different in type, the human connection often makes the difference, along with the price. I call a few guys down at once, Joey and two brothers, Vic and John. That's Vic and John Arena, by the way, perhaps two of my top five. I'm I'm now butting in and explaining two of the top five clients I've ever represented in, in my life. They were brothers and they had a series of federal cases and we ended up getting a, a, an acquittal. It was wonderful. Anyway, I call a few guys down at once, Joey and two brothers, Vic and John, our clients that are on the same case. I'll see the two brothers together after Joey. By calling everyone down at the same time, I'll save time. Otherwise, I would have to just send Joey back and then call for Vic and John and the delay here could be up to a half an hour. Today is family visit day, and the room is packed with wives, girlfriends, kids, brothers, and sisters of the inmates. Sometimes large families gather around an inmate. In a sick kind of way, the inmate holds court over the family as if it were Thanksgiving, and he's spinning a story while carving the bird. I approach the guard behind the desk, a fellow named Mr. Neal, and ask for my three guys to be called. He tells me no. I can have either Joey or Vic and John. All three are not permitted down at once. According to this guy, a lawyer treated him badly yesterday, and we need to be reminded that this is his jail and not ours. I ask him to give me a break that I just want to get in and get out of here, but he's playing his power card in here, and he knows he can torture me if he wants, and he clearly wants to. I'm frustrated, and I try reasoning with him, but he won't have it. It's my game, not yours. You lawyers are all liars, and you're going to understand this is my jail. Now, which one do you want down first? I tell him Joey, and he proceeds to call up to Vic and John's unit and put a freeze on them. That's in quotes. Tell him to watch the prayer channel. Neil is full of smirks, and I want to slap the shit out of him, but I have to be calm. After all, he could make me miserable in here with the red tape, and I just want to get out. I spot our client, Sally Dogs, in the crowd. He's with his family. He makes me laugh, Sal. He's very colorful and happy. He's with his girlfriend, and he stands up as I approach. What happened was I was I'm butting in now. I was going to sit in the attorney conference room waiting for Joey to come down, but Sal, another client, just happened to be there having a family visit. That's just sometimes that's what happens. He's with his girlfriend and stands up as I approach. I greet him with a kiss. That's what you do with the Italian uh, clients. And... We start some small talk when Neil comes up behind me angrily and tells us that Sally's family visit will be terminated if I remain in the family area. No lawyers mixing with family visits, we're told. Sal also tries to reason, but Neil won't let him finish the sentence. Sal remains calm, but gives Neil a murderous look that I'm sure he wishes he could complete. In the street, Sal was known as a man's man, a killer's killer. During his trial, wiretaps revealed his comment that, quote, Anybody I said I kill, I killed. It's an honor to be killed by Sally Dogs. Other victims of Sal's group had their eyes taken out with spoons or forks. One guy had a piece of his cheek bitten off. 
but now we're stuck with this sadistic fuck Neil and his polyester blue blazer and his buzz cut. Sal used to make in a week what Neil makes in a year. And Sal don't have to look up guys' assholes with a pen light looking for a surprise. I'm going to butt in now. Uh, before they send the inmates back up to their cells, uh, they put on rubber gloves and they look up their asses to make sure they're not smuggling anything. It's a real pleasure to be a, a prison guard. Okay, now let me go back. Sal didn't have to look up guys' assholes with a pen light looking for a surprise. I'm a little pissed at Neil for making me and Sal feel weak by asserting his thin veil of authority. He's enjoying himself at every opportunity now. Quote, my rules are what count in here, not you lawyers. I mutter and pace in front of his desk. I don't want to get involved in this because it's a no-win situation. I can't possibly reason with this bonehead, but I'm a fighter by nature and I can't control myself. Neil, why are you being so ridiculous? I'm here every fucking weekend and I never give you any problems. Stop busting my balls. You got to understand, Mr. Lawyer, rules, my rules. I know what your Italians are going to do. They're going to talk their Italian business. I know your game. I don't trust you. Hey, how many classes in law school did you take to have to learn how to lie? I look at my watch. Time's a-wasting, and I'm wasting it with this fuck. I practice uh, a pace, excuse me, back and forth and mutter some more. I look behind me, and Sal is stretching his neck to see me and Neil beginning to argue. He can sense I'm starting to boil. Sal's girl has her back to me and continues to talk to Sal, oblivious to Sal's lack of interest. Neil then makes a mistake. Let me tell you how it works in my jail. The other night, some girl was here and she wanted a co-defendant meeting, but she didn't have the right paperwork. I let her have a meeting anyway, because it's my jail. I completely lose my shit at this. Wait a second, you fuck. You broke the rules and then you won't do me a favor now? I'm not even, I'm not even breaking the rules. You're a capricious and punitive fuck. What the fuck is wrong with you? Neil's only response is a quiet, don't curse at me. Fuck you, you prejudiced bastard. What are you going to do, arrest me? You're not a cop, you're a fucking stewardess. Go get me some pretzels and a Coke, you fuck. Go arrest me, we'll both go to your boss, you idiot. The room is now growing quiet as I continue the verbal assault, arms waving. I glance over my shoulder and see Sal, wild. His eyes are on fire, pumping his arm and screaming, get that fuck! His eyes freeze me for a second. I can see that he wants to tear flesh. I feel some warmth because I realize it's not my flesh he's after. He's on my side, and I'm making him happy. I step things up a bit. Listen to me, you pig. This is not your fucking jail. You don't own it. You're a nobody fucking jerk-off. Neil is humiliated. His eyes are looking down, and a dim light bulb appears over his head, and he looks up and asks me if my mother was proud of me when I decided to go to law school. I spit out that she was very disappointed. After all, she was hoping I would become a prison guard. I hear some shuffling behind me. It's Joey, the potential client, and he's witnessed the entire exchange. He's beaming with pride. In five minutes, we're hired. He sees Jerry a few days later in jail and tells him that he would hate to have me mad at him. Joey's charged with conspiracy to commit murder. Oy, that's the end of that. I swear that I am not that person anymore. This was 30 years ago. There's no way. I can't even believe, in a sense, that that was me. I'm much more persuasive now, less filled with crazed anger, less hair-trigger temper. I still have it to some degree. I mean, I'm not going to lie. But I was working a lot back then, seven days a week, all day and night. And I had very little patience for anyone getting in my way. I'm going to take a break now. I'll be back in a second and let you know what also happened this week.
back with Beyond the Legal Limit. Beyond traveling uh, to Chambersburg, Pennsylvania for a prison visit this week, I also settled a herpes case that I filed in federal court. And although I'm not a, uh, I am a criminal attorney, I do occasionally get hired on civil cases, oftentimes for sexual harassment claims and or herpes cases. And what I mean by that is when a woman uh, contracts herpes by uh, uh, via a date or a boyfriend, and they're pissed and they want to sue. It happens with increasing frequency. What I've learned is that al- although I don't do a lot of civil cases, I've had an inordinate amount of, su- of success in them. And I think it has to do with the fact that the cross-examination skills and overall lawyering skills that I've developed in much more serious high stakes litigations and difficult criminal cases, it translates really well into civil situations where in the other side is not so used to dealing with lawyers like me. I first started doing civil work in a New Jersey case brought by the Division of Youth and Family Services. Uh, they were seeking to nullify the adoption of two children by me, by my client and remove them from his home due to allegations that he posed a, a danger of sexual abuse to the children. This is a client who hired me after listening to me on the radio when I was on WABC. I mean, that, that happened for real. The children in this case had been born through a surrogate hired by our client, the only father that they had ever known. We won a motion to dismiss the case, if you can believe, <clears throat> but the New Jersey appellate court reversed and sent the case back down, ordering a trial on the issue of the, the danger of the sexual abuse allegations. The Division of Youth and Family Service Attorneys presented an expert, a psychologist, who examined our client at length, he was allowed to, and tested him and ultimately concluded that the children were at risk of sexual abuse from our client. Now, we prepared the cross-examination of this expert like I was crossing Mikey Scar's De Leonardo in the Gotti case, for real. And the expert just fell apart. Once I started the cross, every bad conclusion he had made in his report was just blown to smithereens as I found inconsistencies in the science that he had used to make the conclusions. I crossed this guy for about six hours and he just wobbled off the stand. The judge determined that the expert's witness was flawed. That's uh, her word. And his expert report deemed invalid. That's her word. The complaint filed against our client by, uh, it's, it's called the New Jersey DIFUS, New Jersey Division of Youth and Family Service, was finally mercifully dismissed for good. And this was an expert witness who had testified numerous times in court before. Uh, cross-examination, though, is cross-examination. Impeaching a witness is the same whether it's a criminal or a civil case. Even though this was a highly trained psychologist who knew the science better than I did before the case started, once I got my meat hooks into him, he just fell apart. Case was dismissed and the family was kept together. And from then on, I started doing sexual harassment cases and found the same concepts held true. Civil lawyers and their clients just aren't ready <clears throat> for a criminal trial lawyer who is capable of not just filing a lawsuit, but convincing a jury to fine for us. And if I can do uh, this in an impossible to win criminal case, I can certainly do it in a civil case where instead of having perhaps a 2% chance to win, you have like a 50% chance to win. So I settled one sexual harassment case for $4.35 million, and away I went. I've had multiple huge sexual assault or sexual harassment uh, in the workplace settlements, and we even won a, a herpes trial in Staten Island due to our claim of intentional battery that the uh, man gave it to this woman, knew that he had it, and didn't care. 
In this trial, it was proven at the first that our client was infected with genital herpes due to the intentional actions of the defendant and without our client's consent. And just this last week, I said we want a seven-figure herpes settlement, despite the fact that the defendant never tested positive for herpes and until well after the case was filed, never had an outbreak, yet our client contracted herpes while dating him. The offer which we received from the defense before we filed the lawsuit was 125000 after we filed it, 125000 We then got ready for depositions after two years of litigation. And again, I treated this like it was life or death. It wasn't a deposition to gather facts. It was a deposition to punish, to abuse, to hammer the defendant, and to get him to settle, to let him know this is what a public trial was going to be like. We then got ready for depositions after two years of litigation. And the offer the day of the deposition was 250000 no more. That was it. That was the highest they were going. I got through one-third of my examination of the defendant, and it was brutal, just abusive and brutal. We took a break and settled the case right then and there in my office while the court reporter and videographer were still in the conference room. Seven figures. The client was disappointed mainly that she didn't get to see me finish the cross. It really was that good. So I'll be doing more of these kinds of cases in the future. Now, what else occurred this week? I took on as a client James O'Keefe, the CEO and founder of Project Veritas, the group of undercover journalists who exposed corruption and misconduct in the government, in schools and woke schools, in the traditional media. He uses tipsters and undercover journalists to get people talking when they really shouldn't be. He's being investigated in connection with Joe Biden's daughter's daughter, Ashley Biden's diary, which was provided to Project Veritas by two tipsters who found the abandoned diary in a house that, that uh, Ashley Biden had vacated. And this was before the 2020 presidential election. So you can imagine this was uh, an important diary. James has had a string of high-profile successes. One you may recall was getting from an, an ABC insider, the hot mic confession by ABC News anchor Amy Robach. Did I pronounce that right? To her studio crew that she had the whole Jeffrey Epstein story well before it came out, but her network suppressed it because of pressure from the British royal family. Isn't that wonderful? Because Prince Andrew was involved with Epstein. But isn't that wonderful that uh, the American press is uh, holding stories back because of the British royal family? <clears throat> James has gotten CNN producers to say on camera that Americans are idiots and to admit their bias against Republicans. He recently caught an aide to New York City Mayor Eric Adams, saying that Adams had no idea how to handle the migrants that were being sent from Texas, and that Adams was corrupt. And finally, that he and Adams agreed that cops and firemen <clears throat> who refused to get their COVID vaccine were basically clowns for not doing a, quote, very harmless thing to get the vaccine, and they deserve to lose their jobs for it. He also said on tape, quote, being a cop is like the cushiest gig in the city. Like, you might get shot, but otherwise it's very good. I mean, this is the level of person that's working for Eric Adams, mayor in the club. Adams fired him very soon after this came out, although he first claimed that Project Veritas can't be trusted and that they spin false narratives. Well, I guess it wasn't that false because they fired this clown. 
Now, I'm representing James in connection with the federal government's very heavy-handed investigation into him and his reporters in connection with the Ashley Biden diary, which, as I said, she left in a house in Florida. Two tipsters found it. They contacted Project Veritas, and they ultimately, Project Veritas, decided not to publish it as they felt that although it was hugely embarrassing to Joe Biden, it wasn't newsworthy enough, although the contents would have certainly been really embarrassing for Biden and his family. But that's kind of how James is. He's not just about making a splash. He's also a journalist. I mean, he's a journalist. And if it wasn't newsworthy, it wasn't worth publishing. Nevertheless, a year ago, a large team of FBI agents showed up at his home at dawn and were prepared to break the door down with a battering ram if he didn't answer the the knock on the door. They then proceeded to handcuff him in his underwear and ultimately took his two cell phones as part of the uh, investigation into him and Project Veritas's actions in connection with the diary. The feds did the same raid on two other reporters from Project Veritas, and now it's a year later. And during the period that's past the year, it was learned that the government secretly seized the emails of Project Veritas reporters, all in connection with this investigation, which continues. Now, this is the just a crazed attack on the free press, which even offended the ACLU, which protested it. The government had to be ordered by a judge due to the press rights of this news organization to even allow a special master to review what was taken. That's an objective, independent party that instead of just giving all the the, the material to prosecutors and agents and let them do as they pleased, that there would be a special master in between to determine what was privileged. And stuff that should not be turned over. You know, if it's between attorney-client or other privileges, uh, you don't just give it to the government. It has to be held back. And as I said, it's a year later. The investigation continues. And I have to tell you, I am proud to represent James as to what he's, uh, what was done to him. To me, was just a clear attack on the free press due solely to Ashley Biden's connection to Joe Biden. This sort of brazen attack on press organization, on a press organization just chills all of the media, and perhaps they'll think twice now before investigating Joe Biden and his very corrupt family. That's the problem with what the feds did. It doesn't just harm Project Veritas and their reporters. It harms all reporters. What's especially troubling is that the Justice Department, through Attorney General Merrick Garland, recently formally banned the use of subpoenas, warrants, or court orders to seize reporters' communications their records, or demand their notes or testimony in an effort to uncover confidential sources in leak investigations. Now, what's happened now is that Garland is saying, we won't even use subpoenas to get that kind of stuff because we respect the press so much. But somehow the Justice Department's new policy is now in place But handcuffing members of the press and grabbing their cell phones and secretly subpoenaing their emails was okay over the last two years. It's totally preposterous. Regardless, I'm very excited to represent James. I believe in him. I believe in his work. And I have for years before I even knew him. If he is indicted, he will be acquitted. I don't think the government has the stomach for such a loss. Um, And my guess is they'll back off, but who knows? But what they have done is they've ensured that the free press of this country is sufficiently intimidated to stay in line with his administration. Period. End of story. Now, that's what's happened in a week of my life. That's what I wanted to put out there this episode. Uh, You have some a very 
a wide strike zone of things that can happen from prison visits to Chambersburg, Pennsylvania, to settling herpes cases, to taking on James O'Keefe, all happened in one week. Jeffrey Lickman for Beyond the Legal Limit. You can find me on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, beyondthelegallimit.com. Please write to me if you have any questions, if you uh, have any topics you'd like me to go over. I actually read all the emails. Thanks for tuning in.